All right, if you have a Bible, turn to Gen- or Exodus, rather, Exodus 25. We're going to move into this passage, great passage. We're working through our series on the book of Exodus. And while you're turning there, again, when the service is over, come down and either tell her thanks or grab one of those pamphlets, stick it up on your fridge and pray for her for the next week, the next two weeks, pray for that ministry. Um, this is going to be a passage that might be the first time some of you have ever heard something taught on this topic. Um, but before we jump in, as you stay in Exodus, I'm going to read from a psalm, Psalm 42. It's one that we've all heard many times. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And here's the big question. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, I, I am... Sure, the author of this psalm had no idea that it would forever be depicted in watercolor on the front of a journal or on the side of a coffee mug of this beautiful scenery and this beautiful deer frolicking. That's not the picture of it. This is a picture of an animal that's dying, (laughs) dying from dehydration, foam at the mouth, knees all wobbling all over the place. Because when we don't have water, that's what happens to us. We start to die slowly. Some of you have been dehydrated too, right? Foamed at the mouth, knees banging all over the place. Where you just could think of nothing else besides how can I get water in me as fast as possible. I was telling someone the other day that back in 2017, I went out to Big Ridge State Park in Maynardville just to go on what was supposed to be a casual run, like a five-mile nature run, right? There was no cars in the parking lot. I'm the only guy out there. At five miles, I'm not going to bring any water with me, so I just went. And it was in late October, so all the leaves had fallen. And after a while, I didn't know if I was running on a trail or if I was just running through the woods. I think it was the latter. I, don't, I think I'd long left the trail system and I'm just running through a park and I have no idea where I'm at and I got lost. And what turned into what was supposed to be a five mile run turned into a 21 mile suffer fest where I thought I was gonna die. And so I'm like, I am so thirsty. I didn't bring any water. I'm doing like a, like a cost benefit analysis on puddles. Like how sick we really get. I mean, really, right? I mean, I have a pretty good stomach. I even thought about like swimming out. There's a lake that touches it. I thought if I just kind of wade out a little bit and drink of the water and then swim back, that water out there has got to be cleaner than the water right here on the shore, right? Right? You know, I'm trying to reason with myself because that's what you do when you're dehydrated. You're a moron. You make bad decisions, right? (laughs) And so all the way back, I finally saw the parking lot all the way back. I thought, what is the fastest way I can get water in my system second to like draining the radiator into my mouth. How can I get water into my body as quick as possible? It's all I could think about. And that comes to my mind with a passage like this, because I ask myself, am I thirsty for the Lord like I thirsted for water on that day? You see, it's a lot easier to sing this psalm than it is to live this psalm. And I know some of you have witnessed people that are just hot after God's trail. They'll do anything to get one more minute before the Lord, probably to leave you asking yourself, why am I not like that? Why do I not hunger for the Lord? Why am I not hunting him down, doing whatever it takes to sit for one more minute? Listen, I can, I can sense a direct correlation between my soul's restlessness and the felt presence of God. That satisfying, saving, felt presence of God. Without a doubt, the darkest seasons of my life, and I've had a few just like you, the darkest seasons are not when everything is coming undone. 
Not even close. It's when God feels far. That's when it's hard. This is what David says in another psalm. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? You see, when God is far from us, or at least it feels like it, we get dehydrated and sometimes we just get used to living like that. But when God is felt closely, well, then the earth itself can come apart right underneath your feet and it won't matter to you. You want to know why? Because God is with you. God is with you. This is how the psalmist says it. God is our refuge and strength in Psalm 46. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives away. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. That's, that's what it feels like to have God with us. We can feel God with us. Now, the theological question is, I thought God was always with us. I thought God was present everywhere. Is, I mean, is there, are there places where God is not present? And it's true. He is always everywhere. God is omnipresent, we would say, right? We see in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit, the psalmist says, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. There's not a speck of creation that God is not there, not one. So why do we need something like the tabernacle? That's what he's talking about today. It's a tabernacle. And I know what you, I know some of you already were like, yes, the tabernacle. I was really hoping when I scooted into the car that he was going to talk about the tabernacle. But this is why it's in your Bible. But why does it matter for us today? Why is it even remotely relevant for you and me today? Let's jump in, Exodus 25. We're only going to read 22 verses today, even though he's going to spend 15 chapters talking about the tabernacle. You heard me right, 15. We're not going to do it. We're going to read 22 verses, and I'll tell you why. So this is Exodus 25, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they may take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. Now, remember, where did they get all the stuff to contribute? The Egyptians gave it to them. Remember, they had to scram really quick. So everything they're about to give to the construction of the tabernacle was given to them. Interesting, totally different sermon right there. Verse 3, and this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, and goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I might dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, and of all its furniture, you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. A cubit and a half its breadth and a cubit and a half its height. Just in layman's terms, that's the size of a large Yeti cooler right there. Okay, not as big as it sounds. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. 
The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And they shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. The poles are there because if you touch this thing, you'd die right there on the spot, as you'd see later on in the story of God. Verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Mercy seat is a lid. That's another way of saying lid, right? Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece of the mercy seat you shall have a cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces, one to another, toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment from the people of Israel. Okay. Look, you can look at the story of the world pretty much through the lens of God's special presence. His saving presence and his satisfying presence. His special presence. Not that God is everywhere all the time presence, but his felt presence presence. You can look at the whole story of creation and history through that lens, starting in Eden, when God was felt. He was specially present with Adam. Before there were weeds and thorns and sin and shame. But when paradise was lost by Genesis 3, God would set forth the course to regain paradise for all of us, right? I mean, some people have said you can pretty much sum up the Bible with paradise lost and paradise regained, that those would be the bookends that hold the whole story of God. Because after Eden, he's just going to show up in brief moments, a weird dream over here, a burning bush over there, but never really dwelling, just stopping through, visiting, moving on, right? The tabernacle that we just read about just now, this is God's very first endeavor to come and dwell, to tent with us, to be with us. And so he gives painful detail for 15 chapters. Now, I think it's probably where we got the term painful detail because if you read it, right, it's answering all the questions you never asked <laughs> on how to make a tabernacle and a mercy seat and what the robes need to look like and where to put the stones and all that. All the things that, nothing is left to imagination. I remember when I was a brand new Christian hitting this chapter 25 and going, oh, this is going to be good. I'm going to sketch it out. I want to see what it lives before the internet was big. I'm going to sketch it out and see what this looks like. I got like two chapters in and I thought, this is dumb. Who reads this, right? I'm going to flip over and see what Jesus is up to in the New Testament. But they would move this large tent everywhere they went. They lived in tents and now they're building one for their God. And they would have a set up and tear down crew probably like ours, but probably not as impressive as ours. But we have this tribe of Levi, and Levi's tribe had a couple different main family units that broke down, and some were responsible for assembly and disassembly. Others were responsible for picking up and hefting it from A to B. And wherever the guiding angel or the fire or the cloud would say stop, they would stop, and then they would clock in and set everything right back up again, right? And then what they would do is they would encamp concentrically around it. But the tabernacle was always in the middle of the people because back then when tribes would move and roam, the king 
always stayed in the middle and the people surrounded the king. And they would do this for 40 years. It's amazing, 40 years. But the centerpiece of this whole tabernacle is really the mercy seat. This is where God literally meets with them one day out of the year, Day of Atonement, 40 times, I guess. And this mercy seat is the lid to the Ark of the Covenant, which is a gold-covered box, basically. And it would hold the symbols of God's kindness and his presence, the manna, the testimony that he's referred to a couple times. It would hold those moments where God showed himself to be close, his presence with his people. If you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, apparently there were goblins in it too that would come out and melt your face. If you haven't seen it, you can YouTube it. They got a few things right in that movie, by the way. That thing is about the right size in the movie, and if you touched it, you would die again. But that's probably where it, that's where it ends. But the lid had a couple intimidating angels on either end bowing towards each other, this place in the middle, because everything bows before the presence of God, even an intimidating angel. And all of this, the lid, the box, the stuff in the box was put into this room, a tent room, that we could call the Holy of Holies. So if you read your Bible and you hear something about the Holy of Holies, that's what it is, what we just described. Now, I'm not going to go into all the different things in the tabernacle. Uh, that, it, that, that would deserve its own three or four months of work from a pulpit. It is valuable, but what we're going to do is I'm going to show you that the further you got away from the mercy seat, the less valuable the materials being used become. Instead of being gold, it goes to bronze and then wood. Instead of it being fine linen, it turns into ram skin and then goat skin, right? And what this is, is to show you and me that the further we get away from the felt presence of God, the more polluted our life becomes, the less pure. And the closer you get to the glory of God, that felt presence of God, that saving presence, that satisfying presence, then the more awe and the more wonder there is. That's why it's said the way it is. That's why things are lined out the way that they are. In fact, even the design of the tabernacle itself is interesting because the very first thing that you would see when you entered into the outer court is this giant bronze altar where they killed the animals to remind you and to remind me that in order to get close to the presence of God, blood would have to be shed, right? We looked at that in detail last week. So if that's confusing, you can always go back and watch last week. In fact, if you got even closer, made it past the bronze altar, you'd get to the curtain that separated you from the presence of God. And you know what was knit? If you go into more of the instructions, what was knit there was another cherubim right there on the curtain. And that's important. That's wildly important. This is what it says in Genesis 3. Stay where you're at. Genesis 3, verse 23. Therefore the Lord sent him, meaning Adam and Eve, out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So basically, the only way you were getting back into the garden is if you got lightsabered by this angel, whatever that looked like, and that's it. God's presence was going to be guarded by this angel, and what we're seeing in the tabernacle is God's presence is still guarded by these angels. Right? Now, I've not just given you the cliff notes 
I've given you the Cliff's Notes to the Cliff Notes on the tabernacle. If you want more detail, there are 15 chapters, again, to give you everything you ever wanted to know about this. But like I said a couple weeks ago, some passages in your Bible are best handled with a wide-angle lens, and that's what we're going to do with this today. Because let's face it, with all the pressing needs in your life, your big bag of issues that you brought in with you, just like the one I brought in with me, does this passage even look remotely helpful for you today? (laughs) The tabernacle? The tabernacle? Honestly, I know you probably thought, the what? Why? I mean, the news is full of nightmares right now. Hurricanes, terrorist bombings. You can't scroll without, if you scrolled all the way through whatever app you're using, you can hit nine tragedies before you even get there. Nine. But there's opportunity around us. The city needs us to grab opportunities. There's plenty of need, as we just heard this morning. And we're talking about the tabernacle? Listen, that thing is dust right now, somewhere. In fact, the dust has made dust. But it points to the answer for all of your deepest needs that you brought in here with you. This points to the answer of the hope of the world, the tabernacle does. Humanity's most pressing need is God's close presence, his satisfying presence. His saving presence, all of our overwhelming and hideous problems are confronted and redefined by God's special presence, as we saw in Psalm 46. Now, currently in human history, we live an exiled life out of Eden, and a lot of us as dehydrated people, right? Even if we don't recognize it, even at this moment, we were created to thrive and be most satisfied in God's presence than anything else. This is the mission of God, to take his presence and press it into every inch of his cosmos. That's his mission. You could even say it this way. He is re-Edenizing his world. He's re-Edenizing it, starting with Eden. Then he shows up to dwell with us in a tabernacle. And then the temple's going to come along. We're not even going to talk about that today, but it replaces the tabernacle, and he dwells there. And then what replaces the temple? Christ. Now God comes with us again to dwell with us here. I mean, this is why we see in Matthew 123 the pronouncement over him whenever he was born. He is Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. That's the theme here. Jesus replaces the tabernacle, which is just a temporary tent. Replaces the temple, which is just a temporary building. And he does it with his own body because God no longer dwells for one day a year in a tent made of fabric, he dwells with people easily accessed by people in a tent made of skin. That's why we see in John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Key here, that word dwelt means tented with us. He tabernacled with us. That's what John is telling us. And he is glory. We've seen it. The glory that is of the Son the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In fact, Paul tells the Colossian church, for in him, Christ, he means, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The God of the burning bush, the God of the crazy dreams, the God that parts the Red Sea, the God that brings the bread, this God comes close to you and me. And it gets even better than this. Because when Jesus came to live, die, and live again, that Ark of the Covenant just became a box. It just became a box, probably a pretty cool one, right, to look at and everything, but just a box. We don't need it anymore. 
We don't need the priests anymore either. Or the bronze altar, or the day of atonement, because that day on the Christ was the uber day of atonement. There's no need for another one. Don't need a holy of holies anymore. Don't need a candlestick in there. Don't need 12 loaves of bread placed out every morning by the Levites. Don't even need a segregated tribe of Levi to do anything at this point. It would be a man who would also be God that would come and dwell with us. By the way, this is why when Jesus died, the Bible talks about the veil in the temple, not the tabernacle, but the temple that separated us from God's presence being ripped from top to bottom. That's why it's in your Bible right there. All right? It says, and behold, Matthew 27, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. That's because his flesh being torn up on the cross was actually tearing the division between us and God's special presence. There's no more veils. No more veils for you and me today. None. That's what it says in Hebrews 10. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. That's talking about the holy place that we've just described. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. You could even say that Jesus steps into the flaming sword to regain paradise for his family. So we have from Eden to the tabernacle to the temple to Jesus to the church. It's you and me. You and me. You see, the gospel story is not one where exiles finally get to go home. It's one where our hero brings home to us. In fact, we now are the temple of God. That's us. God has come even closer than he has ever come before. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul tells the church, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own. Listen, consider that this means more than don't smoke weed or get a tattoo. I'm so tired. Listen, get over that. That's not what this means. That's not even the context for it, right? We always say, well, listen, man, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. We usually say it when someone's doing something that doesn't look like it's good for the body. I mean, that's true. There is biblical truth in that. We don't need this passage to support it, though. That, plenty of other passages can support that. The context here is don't join yourself to sexual immorality because God has joined himself to you. He's brought home to you. He's dwelling with you. You are now the temple. You now have the presence of God, the felt special, saving, and satisfying presence of God in you. I mean, how does it make you feel? Not think, feel. How does it make you feel to know that you will never be banished from God if you are in Christ? You will go with God forever. Emmanuel, God with you. Right now, right now as we speak, the Spirit of God is in his people. That's got to bring you some level of comfort. If it doesn't, you might just be dehydrated and used to living that way. It can be easy to do that. It can be easy. This is why we make such a big deal over the fact that we don't want to create another veil. This is why we kick on the pinata of law and legalism as much as we do, right? Because this is what we do when we sin. Whenever we sin, we think, man, I can't imagine running to God right now in the midst of my sin. I need time. Think about it. Whenever you've done that thing that you promised you'd never do again, and yet you found yourself doing it, whatever it is, I mean, do you feel so comfortable to just jump right into the presence of God, to collapse at his feet and enjoy him? Maybe not grovel, but enjoy him. Do you feel safe to do that? Probably not. You probably do what the average human does, right? Which is think, well, maybe I need a couple quiet times to stack up before I can confidently 
enter the presence of God. And then it's not the blood of Jesus that allows you to confidently enter the presence of God. It is you cleansing yourself, not with his blood, but with time. And whatever Bible study you could get your hands on, in a week of good behavior put together, all that is is another veil. It's another veil. Not interested in that. It's been ripped. And it gets even better. Because he does even more than save us and satisfy us. He empowers us. Jesus tells us in the Great Commission that he will be with us to the very end. To the very end, he will be with us. It's God's mission. is to carry his presence everywhere, to every square inch, through his people. That's our hope. That's why we planted Legacy. It's the only reason I even care about growth. It's the only reason I even care about church planting, to be totally honest with you, because we want to re-Edenize Knoxville. We want to re-Edenize this city. It's why we partner with things like Kin. It's why we partner. I mean, listen, I had a, a meeting this morning with a couple missional community leaders, and they're about to plant new ones, and they're all excited, and they're just listening to their missions with reclaiming family, with sex trafficking, whether it's the Hope Resource Center or Kin or your cul-de-sac. There's so much work to be done. And we extend this gospel, and when we do, to each other, preaching the gospel of good news to each other or to our neighbor who might be far from God, we are re-Edenizing that moment. Our key struggle, though, and this is where this finds me, is learning how to live a dehydrated life and be fine with it. To just learn to subsist on an existence without that satisfying presence of God. I mean, when we just look at the last question in our first passage, when shall I come and appear before God? Your average Christian looks at that and says, well, that's when we go to church. That's when we go to church. When shall I come and appear before God? I guess on Sunday. I guess that's when we do that, right? We need the church gathering to fill us, to satisfy us, because we've been fasting and dehydrated for six days. (laughs) And when people don't grow, they attribute that likely to the watering hole, which is the church. I'm not growing here. I'm not being fed here. I'm going to go somewhere else. That's typically what you see. But what if the question was, when shall I come and appear before God, turning into the posture of Mary, not Martha, but sitting, waiting on the word of God, desiring the close presence of God, or as he says, choosing the better thing? What if it didn't have anything to do with a church gathering? What if it just had to do with you and the Lord? Well, then that's totally something different, right? Waiting, growing, enjoying. Now listen, we can grieve the Holy Spirit with our sin and we can grow calluses on our hearts that desensitize us. That's what it looks like to live what I'm calling today a dehydrated life. God is with us, but we sense him not. We don't feel him. And you've felt this, right? Been numb to things that used to horrify you. Numb to things that used to delight you. I mean, just assess yourself for a moment. When's the last time you said, even in your heart of hearts, I cannot wait to sit before God and enjoy him. I cannot wait. It's the last time you asked yourself, I cannot wait to discover God anew in this day. And I've gotta be surgical here because I know even as I say this, our friend shame is likely to come in and whisper in our ear. That's what shame does, throws a little bit of dirt on us. Oh, Luke's right, man, you never ask those questions, man. Luke's right, I feel guilty. I feel horrible right now because I don't want what other people want. And so we feel like the only way that we can fix our situation is to do something, to do something. And that's nothing wrong with doing something, but doing with shame being what's pushing us, right? 
This is why when people typically drift away from God and then they catch themselves, which let's be honest, whenever they're catching themselves, that's because the Lord has given them the spirit so that they can even see their sin, right? They can't even see it without the Lord. But the, the knee-jerk reaction is to, I got to get into the Bible. I got to get into the word. And as everyone's knee-jerk, I got to get back in the word. And listen, that, that's good. It's good to get back into the word. True. Reading consistently will bring you joy. It's where faith is found. It's where a robust life is built. That is true. But what if we can sense the satisfying presence of God when we're driving home after a long day at work? What if we can do it after a night of no sleep, when we're cleaning the house, out for a run, watching a game? What if enjoying and being satisfied with Jesus was something that wasn't quarantined to a 22-minute attempt at reading the Bible four days a week? What if it was something bigger than that? Because I think one of the things we've gotten really good at in the Western world is driving a wedge between what we call the sacred and what we call the secular, right? We've made them two different things. Sacred moments are where we're supposed to speak spiritually and behave spiritually. This, right? We would call this a sacred moment in our mind. Secular is where we burp and check our investments and go lift some weights and watch the game, pick Cheerios out of the car seat, right? And you understand the dichotomy without even having to work really hard. That's why if you're at a Super Bowl party or something like that, if someone were to just jump into the middle of the first quarter of the football game and say, hey, I think we ought to just take a minute and pray. I think we ought to just thank the Lord for the spritzers that somebody brought and for the chili over here. It's really good. I think we just need to show the Lord our appreciation for his deeper provision through the gospel as we see it in this food. Somebody in the room, if not everybody in the room, would be like, bro, it's a game. What are you doing? That's a spiritual thing. We're watching a game right now. You see how we do it? You see how subtle it is? We've been convinced that God can only be experienced in sacred moments. But friends, that means that there's still a veil, right? Still a veil between the dirty version of us and the clean version of us. Again, I think dedicated solitude at the feet of Jesus is imperative for growth. Don't hear me say what I'm not saying. I am submitting that we don't exile him to select moments that we are having a hard time fitting into our bloated calendars. You can celebrate God's satisfying presence in everything you do. In fact, if you cannot do anything to the glory of God, you probably should second guess whether you should even be doing it. But you can do everything to the glory of God and enjoy him in the moment. So when shall I appear before God? That can be the predominant question of our lives. It could be the predominant question of our lives. We're already saying to something in our lives, how long until I can get before you again? We're already saying it, right? We're already saying that. How long? Our soul is already panting after something. Just what is it? What is it? Listen, I know that this, it's always hard to communicate with people on how to want something that they don't want. It, it's, it feels like a conundrum. Let me just show you how a prayer sounds like. I scribbled this down. This is something that I prayed just the other day because I'm, I, I is this passage. I'm not preaching down to you. I'm preaching to myself as much as you. And this is what it says. God, I don't thirst for you. I see what the Bible says. I just don't know really how to fix it. Would you ruin me for all that competes with you? Make me hate the idea of a day without you. Will you reshape my soul to be satisfied by you above all else? Listen, that's a dangerous prayer. 
Anytime you use words like ruin and wreck, don't think that God won't do it. I've had to pray this repeatedly over the years. I've had to pray this repeatedly this year, right? Because I've come to realize how easy it is to get used to living a dehydrated life without even picking up on it. So what I'm talking about is not a once-off prayer. This is a well-worn path, something that we circle back. That's why the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Just as a deer cannot drink enough water in one visit to a stream to last a lifetime, he has to keep repeating and practicing that, we do as well. But let me just give you a stern warning before we get to the end of this. If this is you today, don't let shame steer you. Don't let shame steer you. Don't let shame make a legalist out of you and create another veil. Hear me, hear me. There is no ladder for you to climb before God comes near to you. It doesn't exist. Jesus wrecked it from the cross. There is no scenario where you have to put a few weeks of solid devotional times together before you can have any confidence before the throne of God. No scenario in which that's true. The author of Hebrews says it's the blood of Jesus that gives us confidence. That means that you could be in sin, realize, oh my God, what have I done, and instantly enjoy Jesus. Instantly celebrate what he has done for you. Instantly pull him close and call him father. And instantly know he smiles upon you and pulls you close and calls you child. You don't need a week, a month, a stack of impressive things. You don't need it. Why? God is with us. And there's no veils left. And let's be honest, it gets even better than this. The good news, it gets better. Revelation 21.3. John says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Now you can see the symmetry of the Bible, correct? It's beautiful. He will dwell with them, tabernacle, tent. He will tent with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is great. In the end of all ends, there's not going to be a tabernacle. It's long gone. Not going to be a temple either. There's not even going to be a garden. I mean, there might be a garden, but not the Garden of Eden, right? There's going to be the new city of God and in the middle will not be the Holy of Holies with a Yeti-sized gold-covered box with stuff in it. You're going to have Jesus in his glory is going to be so bright, we need no sun. On top of that, the glory will be so beautiful and so fascinating, you will forget, forget what it feels like to have shame and loneliness and sin and sadness and nightmares. You'll be drawn in, drawn in, because God is with us. And it's his joy to be with us in the garden, his joy to be with us in the tabernacle, the temple, his son, the church, And then at the very end, the city of glory. So listen, if you are listening either online or you're here, and you would consider yourself maybe a searcher, a skeptic, but you would also say that God is not with you. I just, you might know that confidently. I don't think God is with me at all. What is the first thing that you feel, not think, feel, when you hear that God wants to be with you? that he wants to be with you. Whatever you originally thought about God, understand that his mission is to bring home to you an eternal place of belonging. It's his mission. You've likely sensed that there is a veil that has stood between you and the Lord, and you'd be right. 
You don't feel the close proximity of God. You've tried behavior. You've tried attendance. You've tried reading. You've tried a lot, all for it to fail. And for all of your attempts to pierce the veil and feel welcome before God, you have felt displaced. But this is God's good gospel to you, his good news for you. He's ripped the veil by ripping his own flesh. He has stepped into the angel's sword to carry paradise back to you. And even right now, even this second, he is re-Edenizing people all over the globe, all over the planet right now. People are having a heart of stone removed and they're given a heart of flesh. So my petition is that you just turn from trusting in yourself. Turn from living a dehydrated life, drinking from puddles. Turn from that and submit yourself to the Lord. And listen, even for the church, if you are here and you do love Jesus, what's the first thing you feel when you understand that God wants to be with you and there's no more veil? How does that make you feel? That you're never going to be exiled, locked out, never going to lose his presence, never going to be condemned or sent away. Let me ask you the question, what on earth has given you that kind of love? What is it that you've been panting after, waiting upon, crawling over anything to get to it that has given you that? There's a lot to repent for there. And then maybe just a missional charge to all of us because we are here to carry home to others and bring Eden to Knoxville, if you want to use the same colorful metaphor. And God promised to be with us even to the very end of the age because he is Emmanuel and he just doesn't ever change. So when you hear things like kin or whatever your missional community is in the middle of trying, whatever, whatever you're doing as a family, what part of your life's rhythms is most in need of God's presence? When you look at your part of the beautiful city, what is furthest from Eden? Right? Can you pray for it? Can you step into it? Can you invest yourself? What about your missional community? These are questions I want you to think about when you look at the tabernacle.